the, the thing with pork is that if you if you uh, discover a great marinade, I mean, it marinades so well. So, and I love the fact that you can have a, a, a marinade with with a certain amount of sugar, and you just get a lovely caramelization, which just adds to to the natural sweetness and texture of of the pork. So, I'd say just experiment with marinades. This is the crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. One of the beautiful things about a career in food is the ability to immerse yourself in another culture and cuisine, to learn the produce, the techniques, and the manner in which to break bread. For Mark Jensen, a career in food eventually led to an exploration of Vietnamese food, and with the Nguyen siblings gave Sydney one of its very best Vietnamese offerings. Mark, how are you? I'm very well, Anthony, how are you? I'm good. You've had a fascinating career and um, it's been a couple of decades now with Red Lantern and its influence has been incredible, but there was a time in your life, career-wise, where you weren't cooking Vietnamese food at all. What, what was that transition like for you into Vietnamese cuisine? Yeah, you're right there. I mean, I started cooking, I was thinking about it about 30 years ago. And back then, I sort of transitioned from a, a prior profession of um, hairstyling into, into, into cooking. I mean, I guess they both involve sharp blades. So I guess that's the only connection. There's not too many other similarities between the two. One of them's all parties and good times and the other one's damn hard work. <laughs> but um, but anyway, yeah, so when, when I started, I mean, I made the transition. I was in Byron Bay at the time and I, I started working as a waiter in a restaurant. And then I really got drawn into the kitchen. So I started washing dishes and then I moved to the salad section. And I think at that time I was really lucky because the, the chefs working in that, in that restaurant, they had like military training they were ex-army chefs so they were really disciplined and, and there was that real brigade structure to to the kitchen and the food was really classic but like modern but with that classic sensibility so it was a really good experience and and being in there and working and, and I just really loved the the yin and yang of the whole experience because here were these like big tough ex-army blokes like doing really delicate pastry work and and all that sort of stuff and I just came from this 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 profession where it was like particularly feminine you know hairstyling to be in this world where it's like masculine and feminine if i just felt like it's the whole sort of human experience right so yeah i was hooked i was hooked from that moment and then from there i, I moved back to sydney and got um work in kitchens but you're right i mean back then it was it was more uh, the cuisine was looking more towards europe so it was very much italian french spanish kind of influence maybe a little bit of middle eastern um so that was really fantastic experience at the time, and I got to work with some great chefs. Um, but making that transition into Vietnamese food was interesting because you, I basically had to rewrite the rules. And, and one of the classic things I think of is if, you know, thinking back to when I was working with those, um, you know, European-style chefs, if I had to put a piece of, like, prime fillet in a, a deep fryer, they would, have, they would have probably submerged my face in the deep fryer after it. But, 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 but moving into, like, a, a, like an Asian-style kitchen, I mean, that, that's quite the norm, right? You, you, you'll seal, you'll seal the, the, the meat, the beef in, in oil, hot oil, and then maybe you transfer that into the wok and do your stir-fry or whatever like that. So, so it's really it's – really, and that, I guess from that moment, I just decided that, um, you know, it's horses for courses – and um, whatever is true of the cuisine, and it's about the, the result that you achieve. 
tell us about the early days and the creation of, of Red Lantern and and how you transferred your skills and, and worked um, with Pauline and, and Luke to create such an iconic venue. Yeah, I think I was very lucky because that European um, experience served me well because when I by falling into Vietnamese cuisine because obviously with the history of Vietnam, there's a very strong French influence there. So a lot of the meals, especially at home, are cooked in frying pans and um, you know almost like uh, not so much the wok, but it's frying pans, even utilizing ovens and things like that. So I kind of understood the cooking process. I mean, the most challenging thing was getting my head around new ingredients. I mean, that that was that was the learning curve, like new herbs, new new paste, new sources, um, and obviously new methods, but applied in a way that kind of made sense to me. Uh, the most challenging thing, I guess, was learning the, the wok, like learning how to use a wok, like how to deep fry, steam, stir fry, and just appreciating how versatile that that single piece of equipment is. One of the big features of Vietnamese cuisine is pork. Um, take us back to your, your career and what you remember of that European style of cooking pork and sort of how different it was um, when you started cooking Vietnamese food. Yeah. Well, yeah, pork. So when I think back sort of pre-Red uh, Lantern, so pork was very much cooked in. For me, my memories are very much of an Italian style, so roasted or cutlet or, or cooked in milk. I remember the River Cafe, I could buy one of their, their, their cookbooks and they had this pork cooked in milk, which like developed a curd and it was like really amazing. So lots of people were doing that at the time, um, um, you know, being influenced by certain trends. Um but making that transition into uh, Asian style, and particularly the Vietnamese, it was like roasting porks. The marinades were really interesting. Um, simmering pork um, is very versatile in that cuisine. I mean, one of my favourite things is like to the the pork um, neck, the the sirloin, I guess, um, just simmered in in stock with ginger fish sauce and, and garlic. I mean, it's just it's quite amazing. You end up with like a really amazing flavoured stock, but then also the meat is just so delicious. One, one of the things that, that I remember from the times that I've dined at, at um, different incarnations of Red Lantern is the pork floss. Can, can you tell us a bit about that dish and, and how, do, how do you make pork floss? Yeah, that, that, that's, that just blew my mind, right? <laughs> that, that particular thing. And I think it blows many people's minds when they have it for the first time. So, so that again, I guess I, well, I, that process I just described. So you, you're simmering the pork until it, until, it, until it becomes very, very tender and very fibrous. And then you're, you separate the fibers. So just with, with forks, separate all the fibers out. And then you slowly cook that in a wok with some soy and some sugar and some salt. And you, you're basically just drying, drying out, the, out the meat. So I guess, you know, a, a wok version of jerky in many ways, but you've just separated all the fibres, so it gives you that lovely um, fairy floss kind of texture. Tell us about the dish that you create using that. Yeah, well, that was like, you know, I, I guess I really love this dish and it's still on the menu today because it was actually inspired by a dish that uh, Luke and Pauline's auntie cooks in Vietnam at the markets. And it's traditionally a, a breakfast dish and it's served with egg and um, uh, spring onions. So it's a, it's, a, it's a rice cake, so it's made with glutinous rice. So the, it's, the, it's a process where it's, it's combined with water and seasoning. And then it's spread out onto a tray and it's steamed, so it becomes like a cake, and then cut into small cakes and pan-fried. And 
like I, I really like the texture is great because it's that classic crunchy on the on the outside and really gelatinous and chewy on the inside. So that, that's a that's a texture that everyone loves. And I got to thinking about that classic combination in Asian food of pork and seafood, and then pork and prawns came to mind. And then I thought, just to put like the icing or the fairy floss on the cake, I, I, I remembered um, Sifu back in the Crown Street day showing me how to do this pork floss, and I thought that would be um, a really awesome way to finish off the dish. So, you know, it, it's sourced with uh, classic nook charm and lots of peanuts and shallots and fried um, uh, spring onions and so on. It's just, it's just a really classic, I'd say almost say signature Red Lantern dish. Take us back to the early days of Red Lantern. It was such an iconic site and tiny kitchen. Um, do you have any stories of where, you know, sort of things went wrong or some, some real successes of that period? Yeah. Well, what, see, what I didn't appreciate is also like this is this is my first adventure into, I says the inner sanctum of, of of an Asian family as well. So you've, you've you've got to remember I was learning a lot of things on the fly there, and um, and one thing that I remember a classic I, I didn't really appreciate is the fact that so so a bit of backstory: Pauline and Luke's um, family parents, mum migrated from, well, arrived in Australia as refugees and eventually they set up a, a kitchen, a restaurant in Cabramatta and the father is very protective of the family recipes because, as you know, all Vietnamese restaurants offer the same sort of dish and what distinguishes them from one another is the the end result and how you achieve that result. So that might be special sources or a special technique. And so I was really invited into the inner sanctum being shown all these these recipes and and um, I remember that I just mentioned Sifu. He was like a family friend and he came into the kitchen. He was about 70 at the time. And he came into the kitchen to teach me the hardware, like the wok and how to, to, to actually cook the food. But I wasn't aware that he wasn't privy to um, the recipes at that time. And, you know, we were crazy. We were so fortunate. We were crazy busy. I think we were working seven days a week and, and we were finishing after midnight and starting again doing lunch, that classic <laughs> restaurant trap. And really late one night and I was preparing the bakor, which is like a, a slow-braised um, beef dish. And I had all the marinade out and I was marinating the dish in front of Sifu. And Sifu was paying particular attention, which, I, I you know, I thought was kind of odd. But I actually used um, some laughing cow cheese in this recipe. And this, this was apparently a great Mr. Wynn um, secret ingredient, right? <laughs> And, and, and just at that time where I'm doing this recipe, uh, you know, Pauline and Luke's mum and uh, dad walks around the corner and, and, and the guy's like five foot one, but he's so intimidating. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just remember him glaring at me and he just said, Luke, out here. And he just sort of gave Luke a bollocking about how dare I be showing seafood and <laughs> the secret ingredients and all this sort of stuff. So, so I, I mean, I quickly learned to, um, you know, keep, keep the secret secret. Um, but then, of course, a couple of years later, that all went out the window because we released our first cookbook, and, and, and which was, you know, funnily enough, called The Secrets of Red Lantern. So all of that was out in the open <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Yeah. It, it, it feels like a long time ago, but there was a series on television um, with Matthew Evans, who was a restaurant critic at the time, and um, there were three restaurants in Sydney sort of featured, and Red Lantern was one of them. And tell us about that period of time. What sort of – what was it like being part of that and, 
and what impact did it have on what you were doing at Red Lantern? Oh, that was an amazing period of time, and and, and I I really loved this show. I had a great friend who was a teacher, a cooking teacher at TAFE, and he used to show all these all these students um, that particular series. So the whole premise was, I guess, the chef hat system and how you know you and I and I. I no doubt every listener to this program know about the chef's hats. But the the, the, the show really explored whether it was necessary to have a, a chef's hat to be a successful restaurant. So there were other restaurants that um, I think Aria was involved and Matt Kemp's, um, Matthew Moran's Aria and Matt Kemp's um, Balzac was involved at the time. And, you know, they had, uh, you know, two, three hats and so on. And Red Lantern had no hats, but we were we were just running queues all the time. So so it was like a really amazing show to get an insight to the to the, the, the chef hat world. But also I guess at that time we were proving that, you know, if you just do a good job and you you provide great food and hospitality, then, you know, the het, the chef's hats aren't that important. And I think, um, you know, now knowing that now, and I guess then, you know, back every young chef wants a chef's hat. I mean, you're chasing the chef's hat and you get sort of a bit preoccupied when you're new to the industry about thinking that's, you know, the be-all and end-all. But you soon realise that, you know, restaurants are not only a house of hospitality, they're also a business. So it's 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 concentrating on the hospitality and the business is more important than concentrating on chasing a chef's hat. Although with chef's hats, certainly rewards do, do come. What sort of impact did that sort of spotlight on the restaurant have on what you guys were doing and also the popularity of the venue? Yeah, well, that, that really exposed us to, to a greater audience. And, and really from that show, I'm, I'm a little struggling because, I mean, this is, I think we're talking about the period of 2003, 2005. So I'm struggling to remember the details. I, I'm, not sure, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure whether that show, maybe the show, yeah, I think maybe the show came first and then the cookbook came second. So, so, you know, through that show, that exposed us to a broader audience. And I guess that, I dare say we sort of, um, uh, uh, hijacked the uh, the notoriety of Aria and um, Balzac at the time, and and I guess we got a bit more exposure through through their reputation. Um, but I think that also exposed us. So I think I'm pretty sure the cookbook came next. So so then we got into the cookbook, and then you know further opportunities um, were presented to us, and you know fortunately we jumped on them. And um, as everyone's aware, Luke sort of jumped on and he's become an international superstar so you know and and even with Pauline now I mean she's doing amazing things so you know very much uh, took advantage of the situation a real feature of your career has been a focus on uh, sustainability and in fact you launched you released your own cookbook tell us a bit about um, your approach there and, and and trying to change the machinations of a commercial kitchen yeah well, yeah, that was an interesting time because you know, you know, that book was released in two thousand and eleven, and I was listening to a podcast of yours, and I'm sorry, the other day about a, a pork producer, and she was talking about how they set up their their farm in about two thousand and twelve, and they were moving into biodynamic practices, and it wasn't really well known at that time, right? And and I was thinking that's exactly the the moment where I was writing my book because I was I just became really interested in how our food's produced and and at that time there was a bit of talk about you know climate change and carbon footprint and all this sort of stuff so i saw you know i wanted to make it conversational and i just wanted to present an like a, a i just wanted to present a, a side of the 
the story, uh, just to engage people, you know, because no one wants to be preached to, but I just wanted to present it in a lighthearted way with a bit of background. So it really was. So I looked into how, how um, our food is produced and, and I started to reach out and deal more directly with um, smaller producers and we um, – made certain changes at the restaurant crown street we had a courtyard so i converted that into a uh hydroponic garden and had ir- irrigation so we grow a lot of our asian um herbs and a small amount of vegetables through there and and it was more and we had composting so we do all our composting we had uh we were one of the first restaurants at the time to actually have uh like one of those slow cooked composters where you could put meat and bones and so on into that and compost that down into an organic matter because you couldn't put that in a traditional you can put meat and bones into a traditional compost bin um so there was a lot of um, innovation, I guess, that we were exploring that at that time. And, and it was just really interesting. I was really fascinated by that. And, and uh, when we moved to the new premises in Darlinghurst, that didn't really provide us the opportunity to transfer all those gardens and so on. So we, we had to let that go. But it's kind of been an interesting road to think that that was 10 years ago. And a lot of the conversations that I was talking about then we're still having now. But... Um, uh, you know, but it has changed. It's come a long way. It's certainly come a long way. I mean, the the um, proliferation of farmers markets has been an amazing thing here in Sydney for for consumers and chefs alike to get out and and meet producers. There was a period of time you just mentioned the site that you're currently in, where where you had both sites, the original and and the site that you're in now, um, and running different offerings, slightly different offerings. Um, what was that period of time like trying to trying to manage the success of both of those? Well, that was a crazy time because I mean, you know, we're just coming out of the pandemic, but um, back then we were coming out of the GFC. So it was it was it was it was really nuts. And back when I was when you know before we were, I was saying how restaurants are businesses. We were actually caught in a lease back then as well. So we were trying to operate two Red Lantern um, restaurants. We had staff of up to about six, 60 people. And, you know, we were, we, you know, we were young and invincible and living the dream, so we thought. But then things started to, um, to unravel a little bit and we had to close the Crown Street restaurant. But uh, then we, we were stuck with the lease. So, um, you know, we were, we were paying basically two lots of rent, but we we're paying that on the income from one restaurant. You know, unfortunately, we had to let half the staff go. Um, but, you know, out, out of that, again, we, um, you know, we had to do something. So, Porked was born. Remember the, the, the little yeah. <laughs> I was about <laughs> to ask you about Porked. <laughs> My little foray into Porked and, you know, when, <laughs> which, which was kind of fun. I mean, like a lot of people thought I was just mad. Well, I mentioned Matt Kemp, I mentioned Matt Kemp before. I remember being at like a Noosa Food and Wine Festival and he said, Jesus, you got balls. I went, what are you talking about? He said, like opening a restaurant just serving pork. <laughs> <laughs> but that, but look, that was really fun, and that was that was slightly ahead of the curve of the low and slow sort of cooking me- movement that is now 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 everywhere. And again, you know, we we sort of doing that on the the smell of an oily rag, so we couldn't really invest in a lot of equipment. And you know, we teamed up with my, uh, Michael Baines from the Royal Albert Hotel, and he did like 
craft beer, craft beer, and you know, like it was actually really good fun. And I used to love the love the food. So you know, we took inspiration. We we bought as many like um, American barbecue books as we could, and and we and we did as much as what we could in in a combi oven. And I remember buying a, a small um, electric smoker, which uh, worked surprisingly well. Um, but again, it was like it was, it was one of those things that we managed to keep oxygen in for a couple of years. But eventually, we had to let that go as well. But uh, but you know, when we were discussing doing this this show today, I went back and looked at the Instagram site, and I looked at that food, and I went, "Man, that was some really great food back then." Well, I remember eating there, and um, you only need to take one look at me and can tell that I like more than just salad. Um, <laughs> I'm drawn to pork. Um, tell tell us a bit about the. Because you cooked it so many different ways, and you could sort of select what you wanted to, um, what sort of style of pork you wanted to to eat. Can you tell us about some of the different cooking methods that you had on the menu at Porked? Yeah, well, so basically, you we sold everything by by the hundred grams, so it was very much like a, um, a cafeteria, I guess. You got a tray, and we had everything in hot boxes. So we'd have roast pork, we'd have roast pork bellies, knuckles, uh, we'd have make sausages, we'd have braised dishes, we'd have skewers, we'd have barbecue style, and then we'd have like accompaniments like beans and slaw and things like that. But funnily enough, people tended to gravitate towards the pork offering and and there weren't a, weren't a lot of vegetables on the plate um, um, but but it, no it was really good fun because it actually like you know I'd work work the the kitchen with with Michael and so we'd have direct communication with the customer over the counter and and again you just walk by and say you know you say I'll have a slice of that you put it on the scale you weigh it and then you just add everything up at the end and say here you go that's twenty dollars or, or whatever it was so so it was really good fun and then you know you wash all that down with the craft beer and you know what more could you really ask for <laughs> yeah, you mentioned when you were talking about uh, the urban uh, cook, um, the con- greater connection that you're creating with producers and farmers. And um, do you have any stories of um, connections you've made with with pig farmers? Well, not so much with pig farmers at the time because um, I was dealing more with uh, aquaculture and the, the cattle industry. So I had good connections through the cattle industry. But unfortunately, I didn't make uh, that many connections with pork farmers uh but again we were still sourcing our um our free range pork through through uh feather and bone i think at that time which was like pretty much a fledgling um you know wholesale company at the time they've grown on to be pretty massive now <laughs> i believe so so i mean a lot of that a lot of my connection with pork farmers was really um at arm's length at that time What's important for you uh, in regards to the pork that you get in, and, and how do you get it in? Yeah, uh, well, again, I've I've moved away from like a big wholesaler, and I'm working with a small butcher, butcher who is again working with um, smaller producers around Kara, uh, and and um, getting the pork through there. So, and why, what's interesting is obviously is like you, let's say pork belly, you say. Take in a pork belly, and you you have the method. You roast it, for example, to make that really lovely crack, crackling. But what we've discovered more recently is the fact that it really comes down to the type of um, the breed of pig, and the just uh, I guess the composition of the fat and the and the the, the the thickness of the skin. So there's there's nuances in between the breeds, which is you know I, I, as I'm saying this, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, that's obvious. But it, it is it is it it does. It's not just like um, 
one method and one procedure sits all, suits all. So if, if you know, our, our pork for the particular week comes from a different supplier, then maybe what we did last week won't work this week. So we have to make minor adjustments to, to you know, to get that crackling just right and to, um, to make it all delicious. Are there any um, pork dishes that you have on the menu that you can um, tell us about? Yeah, well, well, one of the well, did well. See, I'm on this pork belly theme because Jesus, I, I love it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always snacking on that. I'm never disappointed if we don't sell a whole pork belly one, you know, on any <laughs> any given evening. But I mean, the the recipe we use is actually like a, a Laotian. Um, uh, recipe which uh, Luke discovered on one of his travels, but but it's it's a marinade that we use that is traditionally done with smaller pork pieces. But we actually score the the flesh of the pork and really rub rub this marinade in. So it's lots of coriander seed, lots of um, oyster sauce, and a few other things. And we let that marinade for twenty four hours. Obviously, salt down. You know, we we actually spike and score the the skin and and salt that down for at least twenty four hours, and then. Um, roast that up in a in a hot oven so that that's that's one that i think would be very hard to replace off our menu um the caramelized pork is always really good too and we use that with the um with the uh, rice cake dish that i was describing earlier in the program so you know that's another one that's just cooked in um with sugar fish sauce ginger garlic and you just reduce it down slowly and then just finish it off rapidly so that it develops a nice caramel and you keep, keep turning the pork in the caramel so it gets this amazing glossy caramel finish this period of time is um, forced so many people to look at other avenues to get income in. And I'm really glad you brought it up at the top of the show, the, your previous career before you entered hospitality. But um, at, at, the, at Red Lantern, you introduced a barber shop at the back. T- tell us a bit about that idea and the creation of it within Red Lantern. Yeah, well, <clears throat> well, you, during the pandemic, I just got to thinking about, um, you know, well, also, you know, we discussed earlier that I've been cooking for thirty years now. I mean, it's it, 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 that's a long time in a in a commercial kitchen. I mean, it's it's really physical work, and I, I really believe it's a young man, a young man and woman's game, a young person's game. Um, but I started to think, what well, you know, what else can I do? What else can I do? And I and I did actually consider setting up a barbershop off-site but then i thought i've got the private dining room here and i've got friends that you know work in uh, as solicitors dealing with all these sort of things so i actually applied for a da to turn turn the um dining room into a barbershop during the day and and then have it as a dining room at night so you know unfortunately i, I managed to get that done and it's actually was working really well so i mean i've really enjoyed it because that it I, I took it on as maybe an alternative so that I could do that during the day and finally get some nights off after 30 years working in the industry. Um, and and I managed to achieve that for a period of time. So basically my day was started about 10 and I'd do clients to about five and then I'd set up the kitchen, help the guys in the kitchen and set them up and then say goodbye at about 7, 7.30 once, once the service was underway and everything was running smoothly. So I actually thought that – I actually thought I was starting to live the dream because, I mean, I, you know, I'm still, I'm, still, I'm still loving the restaurant. I still love hospitality. I, I still love the concept of the restaurant. and But I just sort of found myself, well, maybe this is my opportunity to do something else. Um, and also move more into a mentoring role if I can hire people to to take over the kitchen and operate the restaurant and do all this sort of thing. And, you know, I managed to actually live the dream for about six weeks there, I think. Um, but then 
things went pear shaped when, when um, you know, members of my team wanted to go back to Vietnam and after not being there for a long period of time. And then, as we all know, that you know, there's there's um, uh, critical staff shortages across all industries at the moment. And um, so I'm back in the kitchen, pretty much full time now, and and I'm still operating the barbershop, but uh, really by appointment only when when guys reach out to me via email or, or text. So I'm trying to keep oxygen in that business. But, you know, when I set that up, I just started to look at the whole restaurant differently and decided to think of it more as a house of creativity because my whole the whole concept was to, to have the barbershop because it's licensed to have a bar in the barbershop, to have, you know, people drop in for a drink, a haircut, and then maybe move into the restaurant, have, you know, have, have, have a dinner. Um, through this period, we've been able to extend out onto the footpath a little bit, so we're offering more of a street food vibe. So, so really, we had this whole offering throughout the 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 building where you could, you know, drop in for a haircut, drop in for a beer, and you know, a bun me or, or something like that, or you know, have a more formal dinner, or or hire the private room out for a private dinner. Like, so it just again, it was that that business putting my business cap on, thinking how can I best utilize this resource that we have. Tell us about that period of time with the barber. What was the response like, and what were your skills like? How did how did it feel going back to that world? Well, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I I actually did a barber refresher course. I wasn't going to jump back in and start <laughs> people's, you know, butchering blokes' hair straight off the bat, the bat. So, so I flew down to Adelaide and spent a week in Adelaide at this um, bar- barber's academy, and um, you know, just honed my craft. And I remember the time it was something that I was good at. I mean, I had a quite quite a good career in hairstyling. I used to work for like in a salon, but I worked for the Australian Opera for a period of time, and I was actually really quite quite good at it but it was just something that I couldn't see myself doing long term and then, and that's hence the like the exploration and, and ending up in a kitchen but I, I sort of I did that that barber's course and I came back and of course you know the first couple of haircuts they went well but you know I'm just I'm just that sort of person that can is, is never good enough you know what I mean <laughs> I have that drive that's like it's never good enough. I can always do better I can always do better so I got in and, and I eventually it was actually really good fun because in my kitchen um you know it's it's very much confined for walls whereas this I'm opening I was opening up the barbershop to a clientele. So I, I started meeting people from all walks of life. I, you know, it was just fun to have that communication, just sharing stories. And I really forgot how much of a confessional that barbershop chair is. And remember, this is all happening with the backdrop of the pandemic. So a lot of guys were disenfranchised with relationships and lost work, you know, careers, they were wondering, stressing about business, the whole thing. So to actually come to my shop and to be having your hair cut by me, who, you know, has got a pretty interesting um, background, <laughs> you know, through dealing with all sorts of, you know, different things in my life. So I've got a bit of world experience, just, just as a bit of a sounding board and, you know, just to, to feel safe in a space where you can have a haircut and perhaps a beer or a cocktail and just, just download a little bit, you know, shoot the breeze. So I actually worked out that the barbershop was a really safe space and I, that's what really started to f- float my boat. Just, you know, the, the, hair, the hair cutting is great and I really enjoy it, but just, just that connection with, with guys and just, you know, it was, it, was, it was actually a really nice feeling after being – because kitchens can be really quite isolating 
Whereas, whereas this just exposed me to a world and I guess it, it opened myself up as well, whereas I felt I actually started to feel more confident within myself, like just dealing with people and, and experience a different, different side of life in a way. Which we're still emerging from, from COVID and sort of um, working out what might eventuate. But I love this idea of uh, this idea of a house of creativity rather than just a restaurant. Do you, do you have any sort of visions of what might emerge um, with that idea? Yeah, I do because I'd really love to pick up the barbershop again. So, I mean, you use that. So, unfortunately, I've got two entrances to the building, the real lane access, which enters into the barbershop, and and the front door, which is my street food um, offering. So, you know, I'd love to pick the barbershop up and, and welcome people in and then have, you know, the drinking and just, just the fun sort of space there. And then as you walk through, you've got the main dining room, which you're going to offer like the like the Red Lantern dining experience out, out the front, the street food experience. But then I'd also like to open up the space to more of a venue so if people wanted to hire the space and we'd cater for the to, for the event so that could be like um i, I don't know some sort of um ex- expose or exhibitions or you know corporate events or anything like that uh, we could host you know obviously you know birthdays and anniversaries and all that sort of stuff but just just sort of have a bit more of a broader context to it so that so it's more of an event space which can offer great food and wine food and beverage packages Mark, I can't let you go without trying to get uh, one of the secrets of uh, Red Lantern with the, with the cookery of pork. I, I know that the book did come out, and you you are tied to the family. But is is there any sort of tips or, or secrets, you know, that <laughs> when it comes to cooking pork that you can share? Ah, uh, well. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, don't overcook it. Is 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 the the basic, the obvious one, right? But also, the the thing with pork is that if you if you uh, discover a great marinade. I mean, it marinades so well. So, and I love the fact that you can have a, a, a marinade with with a certain amount of sugar, and you just get lovely caramelization, which just adds to to the natural sweetness and texture of of the pork. So, I'd say just experiment with marinades, and, and especially char grilling, like over open flame or even a gas flame, is like it's really delicious. Well, Mark, it's always entertaining catching up with you and look forward to seeing um, what you do in this house of creativity at Red Lantern. Uh, we've loved having you on The Crackling today. Uh, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Wow, amazing. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstart. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.